Hello and welcome to another episode of the Criterion Quest, a continuing podcast series looking at important films and contemporary classics. My name is Chris and I am joined, as always, by my wonderful co-host Tom. Hello. And we are back with more Bergman this episode. Something uh, that we used to kind of dread, I'd say, but we're, we're slowly getting used to him. Yeah, I mean, and for me personally, this is another one that uh, I actually really enjoyed. So, mm. more power to him at this stage. Yeah, it, it's one where now that we have our heads around Bergman and what he does and says with his films, I, I kind of want to go back and revisit some of the older ones almost just to see if I can appreciate them more or have a better understanding, I guess. But, um, yeah, because I think this is uh, by count like eighth or ninth Bergman film we've done. So we're deep in, we're like real deep into his filmography now, I guess. So Yeah, Smiles of a Summer Night, 1955. Um, I think we've seen eight or nine films prior and all of them are, you know, quintessentially Bergman in that they tackle some pretty, pretty hearty themes of, of the human psyche and, um, and relationships yeah. and our own understandings of ourselves. And this is quite a departure. I mean, it's still got the same themes uh it still tackles adultery and and self-denial and all that sort of stuff but it's dressed up as a studio piece a romantic comedy um which we've never seen before yeah what like uh, watching it initially i i couldn't help but get like draw parallels to it reminded me of like frank capra films or preston sturges films like really almost broad like studio hollywood romantic comedies of that time yeah but it's written by bergman it's directed by bergman and written by him so it's all him yeah which is crazy and i'm wondering if it is like a massive thing was him kind of needing to have a hit or needing to kind of shift it up and change a little bit because of where he was in his life which we'll eventually get into i think but um Mm -hmm. Yeah, just, I guess, trying something new or different, I guess. And, I mean, it worked for him because this was one that... The film that essentially broke through with the US market and things and made worldwide audiences kind of acknowledge and pay attention to him. Yeah, as I understand it, it's a huge financial success, I think, his first. And uh, as a mm. result, he was given free reign to do what he wanted. Um, who was the production company? Sphinx uh, Film Industry, I think it was? Yeah, the Svensk Film Industry. Uh, so it's like the big Swedish production company. They're like their equivalent of like Screen Australia for us and things. So. Okay, okay. So they were very pleased, mm. and I think later on he would do uh, the Seventh Seal, his most highly acclaimed feature, more or less. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a couple of years later, fifty-seven. I think that was. Yeah, so that, that was two years later. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, as a result of this film, he gets to do whatever he wants. So it's a pretty. Um, it's a it's an important film of his to watch. Mm. Um, on that note, do we do plot synopsis? Mm-hmm. I, I have the uh, the criterion synopsis here in front of me. In turn of the century, Sweden, four men and four women attempt to navigate the laws of attraction during a weekend in the country. The women collude to force the men's hand in the matter of the heart in matters of the heart, exposing their pretensions and insecurities along the way. Chock full of flirtatious propositions and sharp witticisms, uh, delivered by such Swedish, uh, delivered by Swedish screen legends, Smiles of a Summer Night is one of cinema's great erotic comedies. Erotic. Erotic comedy. Yeah, it is. It's it's quite sexy uh, for a 1955 Mm. film. It is quite a sexy film. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously, everybody looks attractive, but... 
the way that everything's presented, it's it's hyper it, for the fifties. It's hypersexualized. Um, it's very lusty, yeah, I would yeah. say. Like it, it, it has a lot of yearning, and you know the the unrequited love and things, and the the flirtatious nature. I mean, coming, you've got um, you know, Harriet Anderson as uh, Petra, the um, <laughs> the the maid who is just you know teasing and flirting with um with young Eggerman <laughs> quite <laughs> quite often, yeah. and things like showing her bust and things. Like yeah, it has those moments. She's but, she's. Kind of loose and, and free with her sexuality. And actually, I found um, an interesting little video, David Stratton, uh, who, for those that don't know him, um, he is, I guess you would call him Australia's Roger Ebert, for really one of a better guess, connection. Yeah, yeah. But he's a famous Australian reviewer. Um, he, had a, he had a great TV show with, what was her name, Margaret... Um, Margaret Pomerantz. Yeah, David and Margaret, which is now... Uh, the show is over now, but we used to watch that uh, religiously on um, on mm. ABC, our, our network for... Our government network. Anyway, he said that it was the first film that made him horny. Um, and he's sure that... <laughs> yeah, he's sure that, that the reason why uh, a lot of critics started jumping into international films was because of the... the you know, they had the reputation for being absolutely sexy. Um and and this is kind of one of the films for him that started it also. Yeah, it's mm. uh, it's very sensual. That's super interesting. Yeah, the the idea that you have to go to foreign films because they were the senses were a little bit loose and lax, and you were able to you know get a little bit more skin or something. <laughs> it's a real yeah. like teenage boy mentality to like expanding your film knowledge. There's a lot of there was a lot of cleavage shots that I, I was quite frankly really surprised mm. by. Um, mm. not expecting that kind of stuff. Even in the 60s in America, you wouldn't see uh, shots that are just I mean, like yeah, flat out, this is her boobs and her cleavage. Yeah. It, it, you needed to get like to the weird, the more kind of art house and like the independent film movement that occurred in the late 60s to get that kind of more radical stuff, like, you know, Easy Rider and things. You start to get, you know, the sexuality and the nudity coming through. It's not like The Graduate as well, but mm. yeah. It's, especially in what would be considered a mainstream studio romantic comedy it, it you didn't get stuff like this so um but i think like yeah th- the thing that stood out to me there in that synopsis is like it, it, right alongside the erotic nature is the comedy yeah and i was shocked how much this film made me laugh yeah me too actually cole watched it with me and uh there was there was numerous times we were laughing out loud together which is odd because usually I'll be for watching a Bergman a, film, yeah. or certainly for a Bergman film, but even even for a film that's and it's now uh, what seventy years old. Uh, mm. You know, I've watched plenty of comedy films um, in quotation marks comedy films in uh, you know our, our two hundred and fifty or whatever it is episodes that we've done. Um, many of them, some of them of which that are the same age and they're supposed to be comedies, but they're absolutely not funny at all. So. Uh, mm. This is a surprise. Yeah, it's the type of this type of era of comedy, like watching in a modern setting. You kind of go in at the best you can kind of hope for is the like the the exhale out the nose kind of laugh and yeah. nothing more. But this like multiple times laughing out loud at like brilliant performances, the witty dialogue, um, the absolute farce it becomes in terms of story. Like it was great. Yeah, I think. Uh Disarray, who is the mistress, um, I think in her 30s, uh, she's an, an actress who's uh, very sexy and sensual. 
uh, and a mm. temptress. She has her her mother, Mrs. Arm Armfelt, uh, who is I think like the the queen of of wit and sass in this film. Uh, every single thing yeah, that she- came out of her mouth was was hilarious. She's she's like the sassy old older kind of patriarch character who's like, I've been through all this before. I have no qualms with like telling it like it is and being sassy while doing it, and it's wonderful. Mm. Yeah, there was a quote um, that, but- that stuck out to me uh, that she said actually, which was, um, and she was talking to Desiree. Des- Desiree sounds like a Des- so- desire. It's it, Des- it's kind of spelt like desire, but with double e at the end, so it's like it Desiree. Desiree? Disarray. It sounds like a villain. I can't. D- I feel Desiree? silly saying it. Yeah. General disarray. Um, anyway, <laughs> well, she says, "I am tired of people, but that doesn't stop me from loving him." And I thought, I thought that's it. Kind of makes it clear what the film is doing, where it's mm. it's illustrating in typical Bergman kind of fashion that everybody's everybody's acting on false pretenses and, and there's tragedy everywhere within us, but at the same time, mm. and this one, this Bergman film separates itself from the others by doing this, it, we can laugh at it. Uh, yep. Every single character is is a kind of fool in their own way, but but it's kind of funny, so um, mm. it's, it's unique it's, in yeah, It is still, yeah, like you said, it's dealing with all of that deep kind of sadness and that existential dread and that, you know, not not being sure of where you are in your in your life what what your point is what you're looking for what you're striving for yet in this one it is he's like it's okay to have those situations and laugh at it like yeah. let's you know we can wallow in the ultimate sadness of it and still address that but we can also there is this other side to that coin yeah it's having this is such a good film to watch having watched all you know 10 other bergmans and you start to really yeah. figure out where he's coming from, um, and his scope as well. It, like, it, mm. uh, I mean, because there's situations at the beginning. Uh, Frederick Egerman, who is the, I guess, the protagonist, um, mm-hmm. even though it follows quite a few stories. Uh, he a, is, a, a lawyer who has the most chiseled Satan-esque facial hair. Yeah, it's <laughs> glorious. <laughs> yeah, with a yeah very dumb and dumber Lloyd-esque. Bowl cut. <laughs> yeah, that's it. So, but anyway, he's having a, a conversation with his son Henrik, who, and Harry, Henrik is thinking, "Well, I've had my first encounter with a woman, and it was a complete embarrassment, and, and I've made a fool of myself." And Frederick's saying, "Well, you know, it's okay because you're young, and, and you only know how to love yourself." Uh, but of course, you know, when you get older, just like me, you'll you'll know what to do, and. Mm. That's that's typically like your Bergman self-denial problem of if it was a regular Bergman film, he would go really deeply into that self-denial. But then the next scene, I think it's the next sequence is uh, Frederick is just as he's, he's an older man dealing with um, disarray, but he's just as foolish. He's full. He's embarrassing himself. He doesn't know what's going on. So he turns yeah. that it turns that into a, into a joke. Yeah, and that's, for me, where the film really kicks into gear and actually kind of... Because uh, up until that point, I was like, okay, I know this is supposed to be a comedy, and but we there, it's there's nothing really there. We've established, like, the romantic elements of it where you've got, 
you know, father, son, kind of a, a bit of a love triangle thing happening there um, with the, you know, with Frederick's new wife, um, Anne, and then you've got Petra the Maiden things like, uh, and then it, it needs to be that scene where he goes off again to go see Desiree at the theatre again, and I had a note, like, I at that point I wrote in my notes, like, wow, there is little to no music in this film so far, and the second I finished writing that sentence, giant bombastic music kicked in, and I'm like, ah, oh, well, fuck, okay. And that was because at the, I found out, like, you know, it's about the 30-minute mark, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, shit, now the film is becoming what it is. It, it's a farce. He's... We're now at a scene where it's two old lovers who still clearly love each other, and they're like, you know, one's possibly going to cheat on his new wife, and you know, the the romantic comedy story is in kicked into gear at this point. And the so characters now we are have set up, and then you have the like the joke can unfold now. Yeah, and we've got like this, and now the the music kicks in, and like everything's in place now, and we can get going with it. Yeah, it, it has a, I mean, it, it has a kind of fantastical romantic quality about it. There's even the uh, that you know the classic Star Trek Kirk, um, Captain Kirk, oh, yeah, the, of the, the eyes band of and light. all that sort of stuff. I, I always yeah. charm, charmed by that. Um, but even even when they do the toast when they go to um, Mrs. Armfelt's house for the Midsummer Night, and they do the toast to, to you know what might become a, a really fantastic evening for them all, and it does those slow push-ins and it's kind of it's kind of fairy tale in a way. Uh, yeah, and there's like dolly shots going around the table. It's very beautifully shot. It is really beautifully shot, and it's. I mean, there there are real problems with that you could you could attach to real people, but then the film sometimes starts to it kind of pulls away from from reality in in a couple of senses. I think even since it's a, a period piece, you can you can kind of look at it as a joke on that level too. Um, I mean, when the count. Uh, what's his name? Um, oh, um, uh, Carl Magnus Malcolm. Carl Magnus Malcolm. That's right. And he's married to Charlotte, who's Carl, uh, and, and the Count's, you know, having an affair with Disarray. Uh, instead of, you know, in modern terms, you would just have a punch out when between Frederick and the Count, uh, when there's the illusion of maybe, uh, you know, affairs on both ends. But then. Mm. They just end up having a duel. So there's this complete, there's another disconnect in reality where it's like, in my, yeah. in modern terms, I'm thinking. Um, well, I think that like, it's a very clever device for Bergman to like, it's, it's not a device, but it, it's very clever for Bergman to set it in the 19th century by making it a period piece. He ultimately makes it timeless by, by going that far back and he makes it a storybook fantasy. It helps kind of, imbue it automatically with that nature when you see these kind of vintage pastoral landscapes and people get getting around in horse and buggy and things it makes it more of a fairy tale when mm-hmm. you know because if it was a modern setting you'd be like okay i you know yeah. you, you kind of don't have that warmth and that connection yeah you don't have that you can kind of disconnect uh to a level where it becomes entertaining as opposed to, to your usual situation Charming. when you're watching a Bergman film and going like it's time for introspection. Got, no, this is time yeah. for entertainment. Yeah, exactly. And it, it, it there's just an inherent charm in setting it in this like beautiful, wonderful 19th century setting. It, yeah. And 
I, I have never... I don't know much about Shakespeare's um, Midsummer Night's Dream, but is there mm-hmm. like a parallel to be drawn here? Just seems, oh, 100%. Seems like there's a connection there. Yeah, no, the, it is basically... It was the inspiration for, like, the plot and the tone of what was going on. It is... Yeah, the Midsummer Night Dream, it is, like, love... Like, you know, love trying... Like, quartet, I wanted to say. Like... Yeah, I love quartet and like you know unrequited loves, and it's um then you have outside forces kind of coming in to help kind of put everything as it should be, like it get sort out all the issues and get these couples with who they're supposed to be, mm-hmm. which is essentially the interesting take on this one is it ends up being a, a character who's at the center of all of these kind of love quarrels is the one that actually sets everything in motion and creates the plan. It's not an outside force; it's someone who's directly involved with it. Which, um, again, makes a really wonderful kind of, like, I want to say a statement against some of the stuff that Bergman deals with, because it is all introspective and existential issues that he deals with mostly in his films. And in this one, we have one of our protagonists taking hold of their own, not just their own destiny, but the destinies of those around them. They're like, no, I'm going to make a change. That's Disarray, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. She's trying to illustrate. She sees that there's tragedy everywhere and you can she's trying to set up to sort of everybody falls into their right place yeah exactly she, um, she's kind of taking control of her own destiny there and hmm. but in typical bergman fashion it while we do end up in that happy place where everyone is together and it's supposed to be a happy ending it's kind of an ultimately sad one though because yeah. like you know for for everyone to achieve that frederick and and essentially have to lose like you know what everything well, yeah it, it's kind of odd because basically henrik has taken frederick's wife even though mm. anne is has fallen in love with with henrik the film ends in such a way that if it was to continue there'd be a huge amount of animosity i would think between frederick and his son henrik but you don't get to see that you just well, yeah, it, it's got to be I a think- thing he like very cleverly establishes it where there is like the relationship between Frederick and Anne is one that is very aloof and it is almost like a paternal relationship as opposed to a like uh, marital one. Like, I mean, down to the point of she is still a virgin. They don't sleep in the same bed. They are yet to be physically intimate with each other. Mm-hmm. There's no, you know, reciprocal romantic love there. It is just... Yeah, so I think that, like, you know, by adding that in at the, into their relationship stuff, it makes it easier for Henrik to kind of steal her away at the end. <laughs> That's my dog sneezing a lot. Uh, yeah. That's true. It is It is a, a kind of stagnant... It's certainly a stagnant relationship between Frederick and Anne, but... I still got the sense that, you know, they they secretly ran off into the night, Henrik and Anne, uh, without without ever having Frederick deal with it fully. So, yeah. In, well, that's in any the case, thing, like, the, is, the film's not about well, pushing it to that level of of tragedy. It's it's no, it doesn't but, want but to. But that's do that. what I mean. Like at, at at that same point, though, for you know the plan to effectively work, the scheme to work and everyone to kind of 
get paired off with who they're supposed to, Frederick essentially has to yeah lose his wife and then also potentially lose his life in a game of Russian roulette. Like, yeah. he is made an absolute fool, uh, a cuck. <laughs> like, you know, he's just, <laughs> like, taken... He's just taken down. And then... It, so it is a bittersweet ending of... You know everything will work out for him, but the film ends him with, like, soot covered in his face, thinking he was going to die, like, shocked, sad, <laughs> broken, and you're like, it was happy ending. Yeah. <laughs> it was a nice really twist, because I, I did think that... Yeah, I mean, it's a Bergman film. I thought that some, that his head was going to be shot off, man. But Yeah, you're just like, oh, now we're in Bergman territory. Yeah, and yeah. it's that thing of... Um, to, to me, I had a note where I said Charlotte, who is the Count's um, wife, I said, to me, she feels like the one, like, like I put in quotations, like, true Bergman character, in that she is, like, having none of this, and she is just filled with sadness <laughs> and, like, hatred. So I was wondering if she is going to go, at, like, at that end there with the Russian roulette and everything, like, if that is purposely her kind of embracing that nihilism and just letting it like, nah, I'm going to fuck this all up and like make this guy kill himself. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe she knew the count um, was, was the, the kind of guy that pulls that prank, you know, mm. but it's, it's still, I mean, the same with, with Henrik when he decides to kill himself, uh, hang himself. Oh yeah. You know, it like, it sets it up for ultimate tragedy, like Shakespeare level sort of tragedy. And then it ends up being just a lovely little, lovely little twist where no, he doesn't kill himself. He he falls down, having tried to kill himself. Presses a secret button, and Anne comes out through a door, a secret door in the wall on a bed, and they make love. So it's it's and, like, and an angel trumpets her arrival. <laughs> yeah, and I, I I do love like he's so Bergman is so good at doing like the comedy button to a scene. Like, it, it's so, like, you know, even when it's, like, down to characters doing a weird look on their face, or you have some music going, like, ba 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 like, you know, these weird little caps on a scene, and I love the one on that one, when the bed comes through, and Henrik is just like, what the, f-? and, like, has to go and just dumps a whole lot of water on his face, like, yeah. is this real, like, so beautiful. Yeah, fantastical so dream, dreamlike sequence, again. Mm. Um... I did love, I, I doing a bit of research for this one, I read a wonderful review by Pauline Kale, um, amazing film critic, uh, that's up on the Criterion website, and um, I, I just want to read how she describes the film. I think it's just perfect, little bit of writing. Um, Although suffering from several ingenious slapstick situations, Smiles of a Summer Night is a comedy in the most important meaning of the word. It is an arabesque of an essentially tragic theme, that of man's insufficiency at the same time as it's witty as it wittily illustrates the belief expressed 50 years ago by Hamal Soderberg that the only absolute in life are the desires of the flesh and the incur- incurable loneliness of the soul. I just thought that was superb. Yeah. And perfectly sums it up. Yeah, I think it's it's a really special film because on the surface it's an entertaining rom-com but it doesn't take long for you to scratch scratch that surface, and there's a lot of depth to mine um, in in human psychology and and human mm. tragedy and human joy and, and everything in between. So it's, it's quite remarkable. Yeah, 
Well, the other thing that I thought could be a good uh, kind of talking point in a way for us to kind of address this film, because obviously, as we've said, it's a hilarious, fun, light romantic comedy inspired by Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, wacky, fun, fast stuff. But, like we've alluded to, there is that deeper thing that's going on there. Um, and it, uh, although the film is obviously one of Bergman's more lighter works, uh, he has said about the film that it there is a, something much darker going on in the subtext. So, yeah, everyone kind of has viewed it as like, oh, this is your light, fun comedy. He's just like, not really. It's it's as dark and fucked up as the rest of my stuff. But- every, I think every single character at some point is completely humiliated. <clears throat> so, hmm. there are the darker but themes. He, yeah, and he's using, like we've said, the comedy there to help kind of address like that. It is the ultimate, like, you know, if... Like Pauline Kael perfectly said, it's like the two ultimate things where you have the desire and the lust for the, like, you know, flesh and carnal love, but hand in hand, he's also dealing with the kind of the eternal loneliness that a lot of people feel and that can come from heartbreak or loss of love or unrequited love. And, you know, that is obviously a very important thing that occurs in romantic comedies a lot of the time is rejection, heartbreak, and a lot of the time it's never really addressed or, you know, dealt with. Whereas he's just like, no, let's, let's Bergman this. <laughs> well, actually I think, yeah, the, the two servants, uh, the maid and a, and the other male servant who have their fling, um, in the night too, outside of the house. Um, mm-hmm. their addition is, is really fantastic in that respect because they're, they're kind of musing about, oh, you know, we're, we're kind of scallywags in terms of love and, and, uh, you know, they're saying that basically just boils down to there's only a small amount of people that really ever love truly uh, and everybody else is just mimicking it. So in that respect... Well, there's this one where, yeah, I'm wondering if it is that they are, like, especially at the end there when they see everyone else is kind of running off and getting ha- married and happy and everyone's where they should be, that they are then like, well, let's just follow suit. Like, we, we've had a fun night together. Like, fuck it, let's get married as well. Well, yeah, yeah I mean, there's. I think it's ambiguous is the point. Like, whether mm. whether anybody really loves one another um, is is kind of ambiguous in the film. Um, certainly, this. It, it's like you can kind of compare it to scenes of a marriage in a way because it's following the same themes. Um everybody is kind of broken in their relationships and, and that's because they're in self-denial to some degree. And Desiree is trying to break away from that and show everybody that, you know, hey, it's okay. You don't, you know, you might be married to somebody that's not quite working out or you might be married to somebody that should be working out or whatever. Um, let's try and shake it up a bit. But, but ultimately, mm. it, it, everyone's, it seems like all the characters are, they're 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 kind of caught in an in a in the, a false love inertia, and they need to just stop yeah. and and break away. That that that's a really good way to put it because the I was the thought that was running through my head is it's it's very similar, like you said, it, it, drawing it a, par- a parallel to scenes from marriage is great because it is. That thing where he's just essentially saying love and relationships are almost like a roller coaster ride, where there's the ups, there's the downs, there's the stagnancy, and it is just, you know, you just got to go with it and you know take it as it comes. Yeah, 
they're, they're all, I mean, everybody in, in both of the films, Scenes from a Marriage and this film, the people that are married to one another aren't quite the right fit, but they go ahead anyway. And it's not until things completely break down, whether it's, uh, you know, over a, a summer night in a, in a villa. Um, I don't know. It's, it's kind of interesting that that in scenes from a marriage, it's the exact same themes, but it's painted as it's kind of grotesque in a way. Whereas this one is very lovely to watch. It's, and, I, I it's just, that, and the only difference is how you present the subject matter. Yeah, and I think it is uh, setting is very important for that. Like we've said, the 19th century kind of pastoral setting is very important to making it light and fairy tale esque. And um, I, I think it's, it's the tone in which he's delivering it. In, in Scenes from a Marriage, the breaking down of a relationship is presented very stark and very real. And in this one, he's using witty, fun dialogue to essentially destroy marriages. <laughs> and it works so wonderfully because of the tone and the style in which he's saying it. And to be so effective and to do the essentially the same kind of message in the same kind of thematic telling of a story, but in totally different ways is amazing. It is amazing. I, I think the cinematography goes a long way to uh, Gunnar Fischer, yeah. who did the seventh seal. He did the cinematography of seventh seal. So um, he's extremely good anyway, but yeah, it, it, it goes a long way to, to have someone come on like that and, and, and build, a tone that is so fluffy when the subject matter is so full on. Mm. But yeah. And I think as well, you know, we need to talk about the performances because everyone is nailing it. And I think if you were given this script, you could again, like face the, the thematic elements kind of front on and deliver it very seriously. And there are those few people that do, I think, like I said, Charlotte, I felt like she, she was very cold in her delivery. Um, the mm. yeah, actress Marguerite Karsvitz. Yeah, I think I butchered that name, but whatever. Um, she she's very she's good at being great in the film, but she's very cold. Whereas you know the the important ones are like Eva Dahlbeck as uh, Desiree, uh, Harriet Anderson as Petra, and then um, uh, Gunnar Blo- uh, Bjornstand as uh, Frederick. You need them to be light and comedic and without that it would just be stark and sad but like Mm. Frederick the turn he makes from pompous kind of uppity lawyer man to absolute fool he does so brilliantly yeah like the 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 moment when uh Anne's son Frederick comes into the room and he just freaks the fuck out is beautiful yeah strong performances across the board uh, mm. except for I don't know Henrik Henrik Eggerman I think everybody has such a, a strong sense of purpose in the film and their characters are, are, are heightened so dramatically I think Henrik is the only one which I felt was kind of underneath it all I mean he, he's supposed to be kind of make and timid I suppose so yeah, um, I, I get the sense of he's the character. He's like that teenage kid who's just like kind of kicking rocks, just being like, "Oh gosh, guys!" <laughs> like, yeah. and I think the because he's just wallowing so much in self pity that you just like have to laugh at him. Yeah, like yeah, to he, the point of like when he goes to goes to kill himself, you're just like, "You dickhead!" He's so <laughs> like, awkward. You're not, yeah. 
Yeah, you're not feeling like, oh god, no, he's gonna kill himself. You're just like, look at this idiot here. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I exactly. Yeah. Well, th- that's what I mean. Like, I didn't have an attachment to his character arc um, that was anywhere near as strong as everybody else's. So, but mm. it, but everybody else was 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 amazing. I think the film, um, I think the film is is fucking incredible film. Yeah. Where does this, uh, where would you kind of rank this in terms of Bergman? I know, like, I'm, it is, like we said, very different, but um, I'm guessing this one's up near the top for you. Yeah. Uh, it'll be interesting if I'd seen this as one of my first Bergman experiences. It would be a very different experience. I think the fact that, that I've watched this after I've seen so many, um, it puts it, it, it recontextualizes the film. So. Uh, yeah, it'd be interesting if, if we saw this early on, if we would just be viewing it as a base level, like, farcical romantic comedy and not actually dealing oh, with the the deeper thematic we, we certainly elements would. there. We, we certainly would. I, I think if I'd watched this, say, as like a first or second experience into Bergman, uh, I would have passed it off as, as a simple rom-com. Yeah. Yeah, so... I mean, the only reason why we've talked about um, the darkness that's in its subtext so much is because, you know, we've seen things like scenes of it from a marriage, so. Yeah, and I mean, God, like Autumn Sonata, Cries and Whispers mm. and things, like the real... Because, I mean, Seventh Seal has some really funny stuff in there as well, and it's dark and ridiculous, and it's it's like an absurdist kind of film. But yeah. it's... Yeah, this is very broad, broad in its comedic approach. I think I think it's time we go back to Seventh Seal, by the way, because yeah. we, we did a request for uh, Silence of the Lambs because I wanted to revisit that since it was the, the original episodes, like eight people and everyone's getting too drunk and it's a fucking mess. Um, but yeah, Seventh and Seal, we also didn't know what the fuck we were doing with the podcast. Yeah, that, that was yeah, that was like episode thirteen or something. Um, yeah, but but likewise, you know, we started Bergman. That might have been the first film we watched was Seventh Seal and. Definitely. And I, I like I, I think I got to revisit it at this point. Um, yeah, that that was one when you threw out the idea of doing the request episodes, and we go back and reevaluate or redo an episode. That's the one I was lobbying for because I think now, like you said, having an understanding of who Bergman is, where he's coming from, what his films are, like I think we can really kind of crack that one. All right, we'll we'll do a special. The next request will be Seventh Seal. Nice. Well, uh, is there anything else we haven't talked about with Smiles of a Summer Night? Or have we kind of hit... Well, you thought you would bring up uh, Bergman's situation at the time? Yes. Yeah, well, that uh, I've got all of that in the trivia okay. stuff. So, if we kind of move into the trivia, I can... We will kind of come out from that and we can kind of discuss then, I think. Okay. No worries. Well, uh... I think apart from apart from that, I've covered everything else. I think the, I think it's remarkable on all fronts: the script, the acting, the cinematography. It's great. It's a, it's an A plus film. This one, it, it, it's really really phenomenal. Mm. Um, all right. Well, on that note, uh, a little bit of trivia. So the film was nominated for three BAFTAs in 1957. Best Film from Any Source, Best Foreign Actor, and Best Foreign Actress. Uh, it was also nominated for the Palm Door at the 1956 Cannes Film Festival, where it won an award for Best Poetic Humour. 
I, I heard, um, I watched a video uh, on YouTube, which was Bergman's introduction to the film. And yeah. he was saying that that he didn't know that it was uh, put into can. So he was yeah. like taking a shit on a toilet and he was reading the paper. And in the paper, it says, you know, Swedish film. Uh, the, the headline was Swedish, success, Swedish at success at Khan. Yeah. yeah. It's like, oh, that's good. Swedish films in a success at Khan. That's great. Oh, shit. It's my film. Okay. And then he. Yeah, he read the uh, full article and it's like, oh, fuck, that, I made that. <laughs> yeah, they, um, so the Svensk film industry didn't actually, they submitted it without telling him. And so he wasn't there, he had no idea, and yeah. <laughs> well, that's great, because I, I understand that he was financially pretty fucked up at that point, so it'd be nice to get some recognition. Yeah, well, that flows us nicely into, um, uh, since, as we, it's been described, as a light and kind of frothy piece in terms of, you know, where it sits in uh, Bergman's uh, oeuvre. Uh, it was made while the director was ongoing fo- undergoing financial troubles, stomach pains. He weighed only 125 pounds at the time. Uh, and a romance with Harriet Anderson, who plays Petra in the film, uh, that was on the rocks. Uh, Bergman later said that if he, had, if he hadn't made this film when he did, he probably would have attempted suicide. Wow. Yeah. Um, uh, this yeah, is Bergman later. Sorry, this is um. So so he he made quite a few films at this stage. How many films had he had he made? I think this is his sixteenth film. Okay. So he's kind of had yeah. failures, commercial failures at least, um, up until yeah. this point. Mm. Like he he's continued to be able to make films, but none of them have kind of penetrated and hit through. And so he was, you know very broke at the time, and uh, the Svensk uh, film industry actually said to him, if this film was not... If this film uh, dis- doesn't perform well at the box office, they were not ever going to finance another film from him. So this was a real make-it-or-break-it kind of swing for him. Fucking... That's crazy, man, because, yeah, if he if it wasn't for this film, you wouldn't get, uh, what, 30 more years of movies from, from Bergman then? Yeah, and not just that, but, like, some of the great pieces of art cinema we've ever seen um yeah um yeah so Bergman later noted in an interview that he was so depressed that he only saw two alternatives at that point in his life uh one was to write smiles of a summer night or kill himself um (laughs) so obviously (laughs) went through uh inspired by the kind of light like going for something a light more commercial tone in the hope that it would make money uh, adapting William Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream, kind of universally loved oh romantic comedy, so works out does, nicely. Um, yeah. He does like, it's like a, it's kind of ironic that Bergman in his desperation would write a comedy. Not, but it's at the same time, that's where it makes sense what a lot of the kind of main themes are dealing with, the whole the existential dread and the loneliness of like relationships falling apart because he was actually going through an essentially a divorce at the time. And his relationship with Harry Anderson was falling apart. And he just started to have an affair with BB Anderson who would, um, has a small role in the film as well. And it's, yeah. Um, but apparently he was so like depressed and like disheveled that at the end of the shoot, he only weighed 57 kilograms. (laughs) That's that's amazing. Which, which is insane. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so that's that's the kind of where Bergman was at. But And so, obviously, thankfully, huge financial hit for him. Award-winning film brought him kind of universal acclaim worldwide. I think it currently sits on 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, 
It's one of a Time magazine listed it as one of the hundred greatest films ever made. Uh, it's in the Thousand and One Movies to See Before You Die book, and is listed as by Roger Ebert as on his great movies list. So it's uh, it all worked out for him. Yeah, that's that's nice. That's that's heartwarming. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> it's the whole thing, both the film and the inf- the situation around the film is just skirting around complete and utter chaos and tragedy but it's all warm yeah and fluffy it it all it all works out at the end <laughs> kind of <laughs> like the film itself it's beautiful yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm. so we'll move on to the actual criterion edition itself so it's still in print from criterion as a one disc blu-ray or a one disc dvd uh, it's also available on the criterion channel but the physical release comes with a new video introduction of the film by director Emar bergman New video conversation between Bergman, scholar Peter Cowie, and writer Jorn Donner, executive producer of Fanny and Alexander, which is a big kind of mini-series-slash-film of Bergman's we'll be doing soon, mm-hmm. and uh, as well as original theatrical trailer, new English subtitles, and the usual booklet and essays that Criterion usually do. Okay. Yeah. This might have to be one that I put on my wish list and maybe wait for the next Barnes & Noble sale and pick that one up. Yeah, it's because it's it's fun. It's rewatchable. It's uh, it, it's it feels good to watch. So I, I could I could definitely watch it again. It it, um, it is a like I said, the, I got the sense of like a Capra or a Preston Sturgis, like just a nice warm hug of a romantic comedy. Mm-hmm. So, mm. but I guess unless you got anything else, that'll wrap us up for Smiles of a Summer Night. That's it. Sweet. Well, we will be back next episode. With another classic filmmaker, uh, someone we haven't talked about as much as Bergman, but we've got another Jean-Luc Godard film. Yes, and, and what film is that? It's A Woman is a Woman from 1961. Sounds sexy. I have not seen it and I have no idea, so going in totally blind. Alrighty, well, yeah, I, I don't know what to... What to it's, it's an interesting title, it's, it's very vague. Um, yeah, and, and, you know, Goddard could be anything, really. So. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, looking forward to it. Yeah, uh, but otherwise, uh, if you have any comments or queries or anything, you can send us an email at thecriterionquest at gmail.com, or you can find me on Twitter at CriterionQuest, or, um, yeah, just get, stay subscribed and check out the next episode. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. For this week's episode, I'm Chris. And I'm Tom. See you next time. <laughs>